Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radio Cloud Native from Mirantis, where we break down the news on Kubernetes, the cloud native ecosystem, open source, and the wider world of tech. I'm your host, Eric Gregory, and it's kind of rainy, kind of thundery here in North Carolina, so I hope that is uh, cozy rather than annoying. In any case, today we're chatting about the new open source control plane manager, Cosmotron, Kubernetes' new sidecar container feature, changes around Red Hat Enterprise Linux and how those have echoed around the industry, a new wrinkle in Broadcom's proposed acquisition of VMware, and more. So let's jump right in. In our own neck of the woods, the Lens team released version 0.1 of a new open source project called Cosmotron, spelled K-0-S-M-O-T-R-O-N. And I don't think it's a home team bias speaking when I say this project's really cool. Ultimately, it's a controller that enables you to run a given Kubernetes cluster's control plane as a pod in another Kubernetes cluster. So it's Kubernetes all the way down. This isn't just a look mom, no hands kind of exercise. First, this enables true worker and control plane separation with no direct networking connection between the two. That's a nice capability to have in your security tool belt. And not coincidentally, it's how the major cloud providers tend to arrange things when they hook you up with a managed cluster. Secondly, with a Cosmotron powered architecture, you can bring your own worker nodes. So you've got your control plane running as a pod in a host cluster. That control plane can then manage workers on any infrastructure. And you can do this many times on the same host cluster. You might be hosting 100 control planes, all of them reaching out to manage their own workers wherever they are. Up at the top level, you're managing all of these control planes in a highly consistent, organized way. So Cosmotron could be pretty useful for someone who wants to provide managed Kubernetes services or someone who wants to centrally manage a bunch of edge clusters. Or, you know, everyone in the household wants a cluster, but the kids aren't quite ready to manage their own control planes yet. We've all been there. If you want to learn more about the project or take it for a spin, you can check out the GitHub page at K0SPROJECT, K0S project slash K0SMOTRON, Cosmotron. So uh, K0's project slash Cosmotron on GitHub. And this uses K0's directly uh, and builds off of the capabilities of that lightweight Kubernetes distribution. We'll drop the link in the episode description for easy access. Swimming upstream to core Kubernetes, the project merged a new alpha feature to define sidecar containers. This is intended to help define a profile for helper containers and multi-container pods that might assist in configuration, networking, logging metrics, and so on. While officially you're meant to run one container per pod, in practice, a lot of use cases call for multi-container pods, and we've been calling some of these helper pods sidecar containers for a while. When you're using some service meshes, for example, you might have sidecars on almost all of your pods. In this new feature gate, sidecar containers are defined to start up before other containers in a pod, since they probably need to initialize first. This is important for things like service meshes, where you want the sidecar to be ready to make networking connections for main container processes, as well as in logging, where you want the collector sidecar to be able to grab startup logs from the main container. So our sidecar containers are also defined to keep running for the full lifespan of the pod, since they're likely needed on an ongoing basis. In the cases of networking and metric slash logging, for example, you need the sidecar to run for as long as the main process does. Finally, these sidecar containers are defined to never block the pod from being terminated, since these are only supporting the pod's core functionality. Without the new feature, a running sidecar container can stop a job from being completed even if a pod's core task is done. So that all sounds good. On the 
arguably uglier side in this alpha implementation, you define a sidecar container by adding a restart policy field with the value always to your init container spec. So it's scrappy. No one's going to call it elegant. The KEP for the new feature acknowledges this, noting that init container, quote, is not a good fit for sidecar containers as they typically do more than initialization, unquote, and suggesting that, quote, infrastructure containers would be a better name that might be adopted in the future. The KEP explains the thinking behind the chosen structure by saying, quote, it is important to have a sidecar to have sidecar containers be defined among other init containers to be able to express the initialization order of containers, unquote. A senior contributor at the project added a little more flavor on Hacker News, noting, quote, the challenge with a separate attribute is that it's not forward compatible with new features we might add to pods around ordering and lifecycle. If we used a simple Boolean, eventually we'd have to have it interact with other fields and deal with conflicting behaviors between what sidecar means and more flexibility. And I'm skipping for a little bit in the post. We're leaving room for the possibility that init containers can fail the pod and be parallelized as well as regular containers having unique restart policies. Both of those would allow more control for workflows slash job engines to break apart monolith containers and get better isolation. Unquote. In another comment, they added that the team wanted to, quote, leave open more complex ordering of both init containers and sidecars. In parentheses, regular containers do not have a restart order. For instance, you might have a service mesh that needs a vault secret. Those both might be sidecars, and you may need to ensure the vault sidecar starts first if both go down. Eventually, we may want to add parallelism to that start order, and a separate field would prevent simple ordering from working now. Unquote. The feature is described by KEP753, which you can find on GitHub. We'll toss the link in the episode description. It offers detailed insight on both the problem cases that prompted the features, as well as the interesting wider context that some organizations were running forks of Kubernetes in order to implement features similar to this. If you want to play around with this, the KEP offers useful details on default policies and implementation. Speaking of service meshes, the Istio project moved to the CNCF graduation stage this week. The CNCF announcement quotes Craig Box, who you probably know as the former Google Kubernetes podcast host and is currently an Istio steering committee member, as well as VP of open source and community at Armo, and uh, also a Substacker who uh, follows Kubernetes in cloud native news. Quote, today, the Istio project takes its place alongside the projects that enable it and upon which it is built, including Kubernetes, Envoy, Prometheus, and Spiff. On behalf of the project's leadership, we wish to thank every contributor, both corporate and individual, who have collectively brought us to graduation within the CNCF, unquote. Istio is notable for providing features like MTLS, zero-trust networking, and load balancing on Kubernetes, as well as its uh, identity as a community project with con uh, contributors from numerous vendors. While it's arguably still catching up on newer eBPF-powered approaches to service mesh use cases, Last year, it did introduce an ambient mesh mode that forgoes sidecars in an attempt to lower costs and improve performance. Moving out into the broader industry environment, Red Hat announced last month that the source code for Red Hat Enterprise Linux would no longer be available at git.centos.org as in the past. Commentators and representatives of competing and downstream distributions widely viewed this as a move to stymie distros such as Alma Linux and Rocky Linux, which aim to serve as CentOS replacements with bug-for-bug -bug rel compatibility. In the interest of full disclosure, I should say that Mirantis partners with Rocky Linux, so we're not disinterested observers here, but I'll try to be as journalistic as possible on this story. So quoting from Red Hat's announcement post, CentOS stream... Quote, CentOS Stream will now be the sole repository for public RHEL-related source code releases. Before CentOS Stream, Red Hat pushed public sources for RHEL to git.centos.org. 
When the CentOS project shifted to center on CentOS Stream, we maintained these repositories even though CentOS Linux was no longer being built downstream of RHEL. The engagement around CentOS Stream, the engineering levels of investment, and the new priorities we're addressing for customers and partners now make maintaining separate, redundant repositories inefficient. The latest source code will still be available via CentOS Stream. Red Hat customers and partners can access RHEL sources via the customer and partner portals in accordance with their subscription agreement." Unquote. So for those not following enterprise Linux happenings over the last couple of years, the crucial context here is that CentOS Stream is Red Hat's replacement for CentOS, which is developed in parallel rather than being the direct production-ready downstream of RHEL that CentOS was. Folks who wanted a solution that worked like old-school CentOS started projects like Rocky Linux and Alma Linux. So now Red Hat is making such projects a little more complicated, or a lot more complicated, by effectively putting source code behind a paywall. Online, there was a fair deal of outcry. Writer Jeff Geerling's popular blog post, I'm done with Red Hat, parenthesis, Enterprise Linux, sounded some of the most common frustrations. Quote, who wants to build around an ecosystem where the open source users are called freeloaders and where massive disruptions are implemented in the middle of a release cycle two times in a row with no warning? I don't see this helping Red Hat in any way in the long term. In the end, this is just sad. It's sad for users like me who used CentOS and the developed tools on it that on-ramp folks into Red Hat's ecosystem. It's sad for Red Hat, which used to fight for open source but now puts up barriers around their own source code. It's sad for everyone still in their ecosystem because they're now forced to deal with Red Hat's licensing shenanigans and the loss of so many in the open source community. Rocky Linux and Alma Linux both announced they'll find a way forward. I hope they can, if nothing else, so people who stuck with Red Hat don't get burned again. But as for me, I'm done with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. I'll keep up support for Rocky Linux and Alma Linux on a best effort basis, but I have no confidence I'll be able to support Enterprise Linux moving forward. Unquote. So that's all uh, Jeff Gearling talking about his projects and where they're going to stand with uh, respect to Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So as to those responses from Rocky Linux and Alma Linux, both distros have sounded optimistic notes. Rocky's is perhaps the slightly more optimistic. In their response press release, they said, quote, while this decision does change the automation we use for building Rocky Linux, we've already created a short-term mitigation and are developing the longer-term strategy. There will be no disruption or change for any Rocky Linux users, collaborators, or partners, unquote. Rather than dissuading competition, the RHEL changes may have encouraged it. This week, Suse announced that they would be creating a new fork of RHEL, backed by an investment of $10 million. Representatives from Rocky and Suse issued assurances that they want to keep the ecosystem of RHEL alikes fully standardized and compatible. So where all this goes, we'll just have to see, but there will definitely be more turns in the story. And finally, speaking of corporate maneuverings, Broadcom filed an interesting document with the UK Competition and Markets Authority, which has been investigating their proposed acquisition of VMware. This is essentially Broadcom arguing that buying VMware wouldn't reduce competition in the marketplace and that they should therefore be permitted to proceed with the deal. The CMA published some of these arguments with redactions, and even the redacted versions make interesting reading for industry watchers. For example, quote, Enterprises want a private cloud solution that offers the ease of use, flexibility, and resilience of public cloud. Despite having the technology and incentive to do so, VMware has been unable to satisfy enterprise demand after many years of effort, unquote. So again, reminder that that's Broadcom talking. There's also this, quote, VMware's own internal documents describe its market position as a redacted. Broadcom believes it can provide VMware with the scale and capabilities to reverse this trend, unquote. So again, that's Broadcom talking. In other words, Broadcom is saying that the deal will make for a more competitive marketplace. That's their argument, because in their view, or at least in their uh, presentation to the UK government, 
they're saying that VMware's current execution is suboptimal. You can read the full document on the UK government's publishing service. We'll include the link in the episode description. And that's it for today. Subscribe to Radio Cloud Native wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the rest. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.